I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Horrors, Both Real and Imagined Edition. It's Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. On today's show, Lovecraft Country is a wild revisionist ride. It's an HBO show about the intersection of horror, as in the pulp genre, and the all-too-real horrors of racism and Jim Crow. It's produced by Jordan Peele of, of course, Get Out fame. And then I'm thinking of ending things as the latest from Charlie Kaufman, the metafictional genius behind Being John Malkovich, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, among many other movies. This one stars Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley, his boyfriend and girlfriend, on the way to meet his parents. And finally, is New York City over, the fate of a supposedly great city in a time of pandemic? It's being fiercely debated online and elsewhere. We will sort through the debate. Joining me today is Jamel Bowie, of course, a columnist for The New York Times, ex-Slate veteran. Uh, Jamel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, Laura Miller, who is the book and culture critic for Slate. Hey, Laura. Hi. All right, guys, should we dive in? Let's do it. Let's do it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lovecraft Country is a new series from HBO. It's based on a novel of the same name by the author Matt Ruff. It's a period piece. It tells the story of a young black Korean war vet returning to Jim Crow America. He is suggestively named Atticus Freeman. He's played by, I think, the wonderful Jonathan Majors. As Atticus, his uncle George, and his would-be romantic interest, Letitia, hit the road together in search of Atticus's missing father, they must confront over and over again the pitiably open question of which is more horrifying, the otherworldly beasts and vampires they encounter, or Jim Crow era racism. The show was created by Misha Green, she of Underground. Uh, it's produced by Jordan Peele, as I said, and it stars Michael Kenneth Williams, Courtney B. Vance, and Journey Smollett. Let's listen to a clip. What was that? It's a shaga. What? It's a monster from one of Lovecraft's stories. And what do they look like? A massive bubble blob with hundreds of eyes. Oh, well, that's not scary at all. We can outrun a blob. Uncle George can. <laughs> can so, you in the car, get out! And everybody come around to the back of the vehicle. Who are you? George Freeman, sir. This here is my nephew, Atticus, and his friend, Letitia. Where y'all from? Chicago, sir. You're a long way from home. Oh, we're just passing through, taking a little bathroom break, sir, is all. Any of you all know where the sun downtown is? Yes, sir, we do. Well, this is the sundown county. If I have found you pissing in my woods like animals after dark, 
it would have been my sworn duty to hang every single one of you from them trees. It's not sundown yet. Laura, why don't, uh, why don't we start with you? You wrote a little bit about the novel that this is based upon and its relationship to the horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, who's a renowned, was a renowned racist even by the you know degraded standards of his own time. Talk a little bit about how Lovecraft created this new genre, cosmic horror, and how that was connected in his mind with racial fear and racial dread. Well, yeah, Lovecraft was really a basket case in so many ways, and um, just an insane racist. I mean, uh, I would say almost a hysterical racist. And um, that sort of fed into, I mean, he's a very phobic writer. He's phobic about bodies. He's phobic about other people. He's phobic about sex. He's he's phobic about almost everything. And um the cosmic horror that he came up with involves these sort of vast, incomprehensible, often semi-shapeless, insane deities that predate any human deities and that make every human being feel small and insignificant. And I, I think that people responded to the, the sort of mad amb- ambition of that and the way that it dealt with how the secular mind confronts the universe once you've sort of lost the the narrative, the sort of coherent narrative of Judeo-Christianity. But I mean, also along with that, there is this ongoing obsession with um, miscegenation and people from other races is degraded. And it, it, it's all kind of all tied up together um, in this weird, gibbering, blob-like mass that is nevertheless weirdly compelling. Mm -hmm. Right. And Jamel, I think one of the things I love about this show is that in some ways the, the story emerges out of a fight between a father and a son over what the son should read. And the son just wants to read, you know, Atticus just wants to read American genre fiction. And the father has said to him, no, you can't. This this stuff is so racist. You, how can you possibly be reading this? And I think the show itself is trying to work through that tension of how you inherit a genre that is so weird and fertile and pregnant, but is also so shot through with with uh, horrific racism. What do you make of the show? So I'm I'm a longtime Lovecraft fan. I have been since I was in high school, and I feel like this show in this whole sort of discourse around the show is very much tailored to my interest because as like a 15 and 16 year old reading Lovecraft and reading about Lovecraft, it's, as Laura said, abundantly uh, clear and obvious that Lovecraft is a colossal racist. Uh, and, and you said, Stephen, earlier that even for the time, but I think it's worth really unpacking that a bit. Lovecraft is writing at a time when, you know, what we would call what we call white supremacy is basically ascendant. Uh, Jim Crow has uh, come through the South. It's been ratified into law and to state constitutions. The wave of mass immigration from Europe has sparked basically a nationwide nativist panic. And so you also have a corresponding uh, move to tightly restrict immigration almost to nothing. And this includes immigration from uh, uh, China and Japan. So you have immigration from both on both sides of the country driving this panic. 
And so Lovecraft is very much, he's a part of all of that, but then he also takes it even further, imagining non-whites not just as, you know, inferior people, unsuited for American democracy, but also subhuman, also, you know, um, as Laura said, representing some unimaginable horror, and specifically the the prospect of uh, non-whites having sex with and reproducing with white people to him is of such revulsion that he can't really uh, express it. One of the creatures in Lovecraft, Lovecraft stories are, you know, these fishmen that are basically the offspring of uh, humans and you know, these ancient beasts, and they are, you know, clear objects of derision and disgust and hatred. And so for me, as a teenager and as an adult now, um, you know, the challenge has always been reconciling what is still, I think, appealing about Lovecraft, which is the cosmic horror, this mode of writing in which the protagonists are confronted with things that cannot be comprehended by the human mind. Reconciling that with Lovecraft's racism, I think the show, and this, I'm not, this is an obvious point, does a great job of this specifically by treating racism as the cosmic horror. And that, to me... That resonates with me in large part because, you know, I, I'm African American. My family's from the South, going back, you know, to going back to slavery. And as someone who is deeply interested in history of American racism, history of the South, reading about lynchings, reading about, you know, what were essentially pogroms against black communities, all these things, you read about them, and it's sort of incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible. It's hard to imagine both being subject to that violence, but also imagine people in the grip of such hatred and mania that they would commit it. And so kind of not really turning Lovecraft on his head, but kind of doing a straightforward reading of Lovecraft, but taking his own neuroses and making them the basis for the horror is to me like completely brilliant and, and absolutely the way I think you have to treat this material. Yeah, Laura. So I think, you know, obviously this, you know, Jamel's put his finger on it exactly, is that this, you know, show diagnoses what Lovecraft was doing perfectly, which is projecting his own neurotic racial dread on the universe, mistaking it for an intrinsic quality of the universe, which is that the universe is this roiling, miscegenating mass that overwhelms, you know, the would-be heroic consciousness of the of the white European who has to somehow reconcile himself to it. And the show just flips that completely and says, no, because of neurotic racial dread, in fact, what happened is white people turned the American landscape into a horror landscape for black people. It's still a TV show, right? It still needs to be engaging and dramatically engaging and, and um, uh, propulsive in its action. How did you find it just as a, as a show? Well, I have to say that uh, I was disappointed with this series because the book that it's based on is one of my favorite horror slash fantasy novels of 
um, recent times. And um, I, I thought the pilot, the first two episodes, especially the very first episode, I really liked and was excited about. But um, eventually, I just, I, I felt the characters didn't seem as richly drawn as they were in the book. I, I think I have that problem of the, the book was better. Um, the book is basically an ensemble piece where each story is about a different character in this community in Chicago and how they deal with white society and white culture, both the racist attacks, but also the attempts to sort of compromise them. So I think it's really about how, as Jamel was saying with Lovecraft, there are some things in that fiction that you really want, but how do you get it out without being contaminated by the bad things? And I just found that more interesting than the sort of... um, you know, special effects extravaganza and the kind of super melodramatic dialogue, you know, like I was already really attached to these characters from reading the book. And I just, even though there's some great actors in this, I, except for maybe Wunmi Musaku, who is, who, who is incredible in this as um, Letty's sister, Ruby, I just, they just did not feel, they they felt like diminished versions of the characters that I had fallen in love with in that book. Mm. What about you, Jamil? Did it live up to the brilliance of its premise for you just as a TV show? I mean, I've only uh, seen the pilot uh, and I really uh, very much enjoyed the pilot. I'm a big fan of Jonathan Majors from um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is a terrific film. Um, and I had seen um, uh, Journey Smollett in Birds of Prey, which was the the big DC uh, comics blockbuster earlier this year. I thought she was great in it. So, and Courtney B. Vance is, you know, terrific. So I, I enjoy them as actors. I enjoy watching them on screen. I had a lot of fun with the pilot. I have not read the book or gone beyond the pilot. So I'm sort of uh, interested to see how I feel about it as it unfolds. But for that first, that first bit, I thought um, I was taken in by both the premise and the aesthetic of it. Yeah, the aesthetic is incredible. I mean, I've, I've seen somewhat more than you and somewhat less than Laura uh, a few episodes. I really like them. I feel like the first two were stronger than the subsequent ones. It it knits together. I mean, let's be honest, like Lovecraft doesn't knit together at all, right? I mean, it's just kind of, it, it's so insanely over the top. Um, but I agree with you. I think Jonathan Majors in uh, Last Black Man in San Francisco, s- since that movie, he's just been great in everything. I mean, he's just a great American actor in the making and I will follow him anywhere and all of the um, uh, supporting performances around him are terrific. So I I quite like the show. I wish it were living up a little better to the insanely brilliant premise, but it, it, when it does, it's, it's just superlative TV. Can I just add here? I just want to say, I just want to say this because four episodes have aired and I did see a screener of the fifth one and I kind of feel like the fourth one is the weakest, but then the fifth one kind of rises a, a bit more to the level of the first one, partly because it's about the character played by Wunmi Musaku and she's just so great. Um, and so I just want to say, if anyone's been watching this and it's sort of like after episode four, which is this kind of Indiana Jones thing, if they're like, I don't know, definitely stick around for, for episode five. Oh, cool. All right. The show is Lovecraft Country. It's on HBO. Check it out. We'd love to hear what you think. Let's, uh, let's move on. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, now is the time in our podcast. We typically talk about business. I will do it. Absent Dana uh, and Slate Plus, otherwise known as Slat Plus today, we're going to talk about the odd case of Jessica Krug, a professor of African and Latin American studies at George Washington University, who has confessed that she has been posing as black to further her career. To hear segments like that, you can sign up for Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. We've mentioned before, memberships are extra important for us right now, given the tough economic climate we're all suffering through. So if you want to support Slate at a time when we really do actually need it, go to slate.com slash culture plus and sign up today. It's only $35 for your first year. You'll get ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus-only content, and lots of other benefits. Again, you can sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. All right, thanks, and back to the show. I'm Thinking of Ending Things is ostensibly a movie about meeting your new-ish boyfriend's parents, but from that very rom-com premise, we glide slowly but surely into a different movie altogether, into a different universe, a world of utter loneliness and dissociation. Putting it as simply as possible, uh, as simply as I can, a young woman named Lucy, perhaps named Lucy, (laughs) that kind of melts away along with everything else. At first named Lucy goes on a car trip with her boyfriend to meet his parents. What unfolds is relatively straightforward. At first, they're young, educated, literate, but we are also in her head virtually from the beginning of the movie. We overhear her thoughts, and in her head, she lets us know she's unconvinced of the relationship. The title of the movie hovers ambiguously between you know, her wanting to end this newish relationship about which she feels quite a bit of ambivalence and and suicide, ending a life. Uh, As the movie progresses, we increasingly enter a dream logic. Uh, Continuity and space and time begin to crumble uh, around us. And whose head we're in exactly becomes more or less totally unclear. I think I have to leave it there and then we'll puzzle it through together. But I'll just say for now, it stars Jesse Buckley, and Jesse Plemons, and also the two greats, Tony Collette and David Thewlis, play his parents. Let's listen to a clip. I am so glad Jake has found someone. <laughs> Won't you please tell us the story of how you met? Jake has refused. I love romantic meeting stories, like in Forget Paris. Billy Crystal? I didn't like that movie. Billy Crystal is a Nancy. Um... So, (laughs) uh, I went with a friend to a bar near campus and turned out to be trivia night. Oh, I love this so far. Jake is crazy about trivia. We used to play the genius edition of the, uh, we used to play the genius edition of, we used to play the genius edition of Trivial Pursuit. What? It's genius edition. Oh, I always thought the word was genius. I've been saying it wrong all these years. Goes to show, I'm no genius. That's a good one. No, no, no. Genus is not the same as genius. A genus is a category. I always thought it was the genius edition. I told everyone you knew every answer in the genius edition. I was very proud of that. Why didn't we get the genius? No! 
genius addition. Okay. Jamel, let me let me start with you. Uh, I guess Charlie Kaufman, you know, going back to being John Malkovich is one of those writer and now writer directors who trains you over a period of decades, really, to understand his movies as, you know, non-literal experiences, metafictional non-literal experiences. Um, I'm curious what your background with Kaufman's work is and what your experience of this, maybe his most far out movie thus far was. So I have seen, being John Malkovich, I have seen Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind many, many times. That movie came out when I was in high school. And as a uh, morose 17-year-old, um, <laughs> that movie sort of like hit the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah. I feel, I feel very embarrassed saying that because uh, I feel like my public persona isn't that. But I was a very morose and melancholy teenager, and that movie kind of um, consumed my mental attention. So compared to uh, uh, being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine, those movies seem straightforward and easy to understand compared to this one. This one really had me – like. Like midway through, I was just not entirely sure what I was watching whatsoever, even knowing that uh, the, the surface narrative isn't what it seemed to be. I couldn't figure out what it was. I was captivated by the performances. I think, you know, Jesse Plemons is a really uh, uh, remarkable actor. There's a, a recent profile from the New York Times, which kind of argues that he has this very naturalistic and, and almost effortless seeming acting style. And I think that's put, put the great effect in this film where he, where it, it, it's surreal and bizarre, but he acts as if it is not. Um, and uh, Jesse Buckley I've seen in, she was in uh, the Chernobyl miniseries and then um, was in a great film, Wild Rose last year. So, it, you know, it's a pleasure watching them on screen. But this one, <laughs> this uh, film had me uh, uh, a bit frustrated with um, the extent to which it is, it appears to be kind of almost pure abstraction um, in cinematic form. Yeah, I mean, well, let me begin by saying um, that, Jamel, if you were a morose 17-year-old, there's hope for all of us. But um, <laughs> Laura, this one... This one's a this is a challenging film. I mean, people do not retain their identities with any continuity. Um th- at one point it gives nothing away I think to say that uh Lucy whose name has changed several times and whose uh, uh job has changed several times uh over the course of the movie to that point begins to recite an old review of Pauline Kales as if it's coming from her spontaneously in the moment going on in a hyper literate yet chatty way about a John Cassavetes movie. Um, there's a lot of this kind of melting in and out of a semi naturalistic story about, you know, parent meeting with um, a kind of schizo logic, really a feeling of not just dreaming, but of losing oneself to mental illness. That's incredibly destabilizing to watch. What did you, what did you make of all of this? Okay. So, I really loved this, and it's partly because it's like a a David Lynch movie, which I like nothing better than that, and there just aren't that many of them. So um, so I 
really loved the surrealism of it and the the sense of the melting identity. Although it should be stipulated that only Lucy's identity is unstable. The parents appear at different ages, mm-hmm. seemingly in yep. the course of a single evening. And, um, and Jake himself sometimes appears older and younger, but they are the same people. It's only Lucy who keeps morphing. And um, I have to admit that maybe one of the reasons why I am so fond of of this kind of creepy surrealist thing is that um, it's very easy for me to turn off the continuity um, function in my brain. And I, it's just like I thought, this is, you know, uh, something that he's thinking about some relationship that went wrong. And then only later when I went off and read some pieces on the internet about it, did I realize what the actual concept of the movie is. But I think it actually kind of works even when you don't know. I, I don't know. It, it did for me. I, I, I could just ride on it. I, the thing that I had a little bit of trouble with is how it's just about people who are incredibly depressed. And um, at one point, um, Lucy also recites in the car a poem by a contemporary poet who I think is named Elena HD called Bone Dog. And um, and it's like, who is she really? I mean, wh- like, why are all of these things lifted from other people? I-, I guess I just sort of went, okay, sure. Mm. Because there's a cellar door with scratches on it. And there's this incredibly awkward um, family dinner where everything except the Cornish game hens, like coming to life, um, happens. It reminded me so much of the dinner scene in eraser head and um and it's true if i had felt like i really needed to know what was going on i probably would have been pretty frustrated by it as well right i mean it's a movie that both makes you want perhaps maybe not you laura but at times i wanted a pat explanation for what i was watching but of course was being told to want that was shallow and somehow contrary maybe to the dictates not only of the movie but of real life. I mean, I see Kaufman as a filmmaker who has an urge to make a rom-com but ends up exploring where that urge comes from and how much maybe the urge to live out a rom-com has penetrated our psyches and corroded them. And against this, he poses what he takes to be the facts of real life, which involve at least the possibility of deep, dreadful loneliness and dissociation, in part because you're asking the other person to conform to that genre expectation that's infected you in a weird way. And I felt that logic through the movie, and then it turns out, Jamel, weirdly, Doing some reading, there is a pat. Not only is there a pat explanation to the movie, Kaufman himself is willing to give it, and it involves this third figure that appears intermittently throughout the movie an elderly, extremely socially isolated janitor who works at a public high school and is a figure of fun to the students and who has seen over the decades, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of young people pass through and plays an increasingly large part in what the movie is about and what makes the movie cohere. 
So without spoiling it, I'm just curious how you feel about that that aspect of the film. So in rom-coms, often the the partner that the heroine or hero meets up with is in a lot of ways like a reflection of themselves, or if not a reflection, um, someone who you know fits into their lives in just the perfect pat way. And without spoiling anything, um, <laughs> to the extent that the janitor's you know, perspective means something from the film, I think it has to do with his isolation and loneliness, I mean, his apparent isolation and loneliness um, and his attempt to sort of construct something out of that. Both of the things we've talked about so far are driven by big ideas, which are daring ideas. I mean, it, it, and yet the experience of watching them maybe is is a little harder to convey when you get you know involved in describing what those ideas are i mean this movie is very funny in its way i found myself laughing out loud it is suffused both with snow right they're just constantly being hammered by like whiteout conditions basically that entrap them in the car that they're driving in and entraps them in the house that they're in and entraps them in the public high school building which they end up in um and so there's this sense of claustrophobic ent- entrapment which obviously for Kaufman, at least in the confines of this movie, is a metaphor for romantic relationships and whether or not they finally achieve the kind of expansiveness that romance is supposed to entail is, I think, part of what's at stake. And so what I found worked for me bizarrely about this movie is that sense of claustrophobic dread and entrapment with just comedy. I mean, it's just so freaking over the top. And Thulis and Colette are are amazing as these parents who have, you know, the kinds of parents who could only produce a cracked psyche in a child. Yeah, it's also the, I mean, part of the, the dread in it is, is about time. And seeing them at different ages, seeing them when they were young and lively and had all their wherewithal, and then when they're much older and sort of, um, you know, dropping the plot every now and then, um, it's it's something that uh, Lucy talks about a lot, is time, the sort of the way that it just uses up people. And I guess... I don't know how, if I found it quite as funny as you did, although there were moments, you know, they go to this um, weird, like, kind of Dairy Queen that for some reason is open in the middle of the night in a blizzard and actually has three people on staff. And it is both funny and scary at the same time yeah. in a way that is really difficult to do. And, um, yeah, I, I, it's so hard to talk about it without without spoiling it but I will say that even though it is sort of weird and surreal there is as as someone who has taken a car trip with a a man that she was just about to break up with it is so true to the emotional tenor of that experience that I felt like you know I felt like it was grounded also in in to a certain extent Jamel let me end with you would you Let's just go totally crass here. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Would you recommend this to someone or would you be fearful that they would say, Jamel, what the fuck were you thinking? 
this should be a very conditional recommendation. My wife uh, also loves movies, but is less willing to watch sort of crazy things with me. Um, uh, tends to, I, she can handle the awkward and anxiety inducing. I cannot, uh, I can handle the, uh, you know, mind bending and, um, uh, hopelessly ambiguous and she finds it intolerable. I don't think I would recommend this to her. Um, but I think that if you are someone who has enjoyed past Kaufman movies, if you're okay with sitting with ambiguity, um, and sitting without answers, then you should watch this movie. But if if that kind of thing just, you know, sounds like it's going to drive you insane, then do not watch this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm completely with you. I, I have to say, I have to end on this note. I was shocked at how much I like this movie. If it were just described to me by a third party, I would have run from it. But for <laughs> some weird reason, I just connected with its weirdness and its sadness. All right. Uh, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's a Charlie Kaufman movie. It's on Netflix. Easy to watch. Just go check it out if you dare and um, and let us know what you think. All right, moving on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right, a comedy club owner has written an argument uh, went semi-viral on the web. It's that thanks to some combination of increased bandwidth and, of course, a pandemic, everyone is learning that cities may be unnecessary, principally for work, really, there may be a huge structural shift in the making. In other words, large businesses will discover they do not need large, expensive office spaces. Uh, commercial real estate, therefore, crashes. On the flip side, there are middle-class families realizing how vulnerable they are in a world that is increasingly vulnerable to pandemics and various other climate-related disasters. They perhaps will flee to the suburbs if they have the means to do so. Behind all of that, as many people have pointed out, was the fact that New York City had become a plutocratic city anyway, a city by and for the ultra-rich, all of which is to say the argument is being made that New York City might be over or in for so substantial a change thanks to the pandemic, what comes out the other side will be all but unrecognizable, to which Jerry Seinfeld has replied, you know why it won't die? There's no energy. Energy, attitude, and personality cannot be remoted through even the best fiber optic lines. I What I think is interesting about our panel today is none of us lives in New York City, but all of our <laughs> professional lives have revolved around it. Jamel, let me start with you. I, I think of you quintessentially as someone who could live in New York, therefore has chosen not to. I have no idea whether this is speaking of fantasy projections is just mine upon you. But you don't live in New York. You write for the New York Times but you live in Charlottesville, Virginia. Talk a little bit about how this argument is hitting your radar. I think this is one of those arguments that I sort of have, because I've never lived in New York and I have actually never really had any desire to. When I lived in a big city, it was DC and I lived there for seven years. And at no point that I really think I would ever move to New York. You know, I, I get the appeal of New York, but it's not surprising to me that when things become more difficult than they are, then my impression of New York is that it's not the easiest place to live. Um, 
that when things become more difficult than they are, that people would leave. But my sense of the kind of you know New York is over arguments. For, first, they kind of they seem they seem to be focused very much on a subset of professionals in New York, and not necessarily amongst the typical New Yorker who is not actually right. Um, someone who works in media, someone who works um, in you know publishing or you know whatever insert rom com profession. Um, <laughs> It's the typical New Yorker is a working class person, is a person who has a service job, a person who does manual labor, who does not live in the trendy parts of the city, um, who relies on public transportation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and New York is not over for them. Um, uh, in part, they really probably cannot leave um, for material circumstances. Uh, but also, they come from communities that are grounded and have been grounded for some time. And so I, I kind of wish that this conversation would at least acknowledge the extent to which it, this really is if, – if it applies to anyone, it applies to a small subset of New Yorkers. And you know the issues it deals with are – we should be thinking about housing costs. We should be thinking about the ways in which New York has not really accommodated its growth over the last 15 years. That, that to me is the – to the extent that there's anything – worthwhile here it's that sort of thinking through these material problems right so so laura jamel makes a great point which is that there's just a, a, a remarkable degree of bourgeois narcissism behind arguments about new york ending you know the the new york being imagined here is an incredibly limited one it's not the queen you know multicultural queens you know it's not working class bronx you know we're really talking about a relatively narrow slice of the city on the flip side that narrow slice of the city is probably a substantial part of its tax base so there will be social consequences for everyone who is living in new york if there's substantial middle class flight from the city and definitely if there's a commercial real estate crash because all of a sudden you know goldman sachs and fill in the blank you know uh some of the massive tech giants who are now there suddenly decide that you know paying that amount of money on on that amount of office space is just an, an form of economic suicide. Anyway, what do you make of all of this as someone sitting right now up in Maine? Well, I lived in New York for 20 years, and I, especially for the first maybe 15 to 17 years of that, I really had a great time there. Um, I am a writer. I don't teach. So I don't really, you know, I have a modest income. And one of the main reasons that I left is just that I, I couldn't afford to live there anymore, even though I owned my, my own apartment. Um, but I also do think that the other people who are sort of left out of this guy's argument are young people. I mean, this guy is married. I think he has a family, this James Altucher uh, comedy club owner guy. Um, there's a lot less incentive to go out or to meet a lot of new people once you are middle-aged, you know, and, and um, a lot of young people think it's, well, I, I mean, I don't want to say they think it's, they don't love having four roommates in a two-bedroom apartment or whatever um, young people have to do in New York today to, to afford to live there. But I mean, you know, they're willing to do it because of the excitement that Seinfeld talked about of meeting new and different kinds of people. Um, I don't think the average 24-year-old wants to go live in the suburbs. It just mm -hmm. seems yes. absurd right. to me. Right. And um, 
And I think there was a hilarious McSweeney's parody of this piece that said, New York is over to me, a baby who has no object permanence. Um, You know, the baby was like, I can't see it anymore. Therefore, it doesn't exist. And I feel like to this, this guy is kind of similar to that. He doesn't see anymore what's appealing about living in any, you know, big city to a young person because he's not a young person anymore. And he's just completely forgotten what that was all about. And I, I think that there's a, a likelihood that if there, well, there are going to be these severe economic consequences of the pandemic. But I mean, I think there's a likelihood that if the cost of living in New York goes down, it will actually become more yeah. appealing to people yeah. than it than it has become recently. Yeah, I mean, you've hit on my hobby horse. I mean, I grew up in New York in the 1970s. You know, it was famously a bankrupt city. It did have you know huge social problems. It was a city that, in many ways, was was completely falling apart. It was also, you know, the absolute heyday for being a young creative person in in New York City, and I I just think of these two things as being in dynamic tension with one another because among the compensations of a globalized economy has been this return to cosmopolitanism and a reinvigoration of cities uh, as places that people don't flee, you know, middle class people don't flee anymore, which I think in general has been a positive thing only because I think of the suburbs as so quintessentially racist and antisocial. And that, you know, having people of an incredible diversity of backgrounds and um, economic uh, social stratums living in a dense way with one another promotes democracy and social sympathy. I mean, you know, and, and so... At the very least, as a sort of anti-suburban trend, the fact that cities became "quote unquote" livable—and that's an unpackable term—you know, you lost. It's funny; it was a real dialectical trade-off. You lost the squats and the cheap rents that made the creative explosion of the 1970s in New York City possible, but you gained, in some ways, a more highly functional, more vital, and in in some respects, more diverse—you know—city. And therefore, American culture, right? I mean, to the degree that a huge portions of American culture funnel through its cities, to have those cities go through something like a renaissance is not an unimportant fact. But it's it's just it's just a tough trade-off because the creative class is now priced out of New York. And the hope, Jamel, has to be that rents do kind of collapse and that something like a life cycle, the life cycle of the city has achieved its plut- late plutocratic decadent phase and renewal was necessary, pandemic or not. To jump into policy real quick, the exodus of people from New York has resulted in a decline in rents. And it, it is sort of a test case of the argument um, from advocates for increasing or dramatically increasing housing supply that the kind of a, a central problem based in New York is that for as dense as it is, it could be denser, and mm-hmm. that there has not actually been enough building of housing to support the increase in population, um, especially not in the places that are most highly in demand. And the extent to which rents have gone down in those places, I think, is evidence that, yeah, when there's when there's more supply available, prices are going to go down. So I think that looking forward, you know, if cities, cities take on a life of their own, right? And they they the density of people and of businesses and of everything creates its own momentum 
Um, it's why I would never, I, I never expect Silicon Valley to like break apart because there's just something about having everyone in one place that, in short, it's going to you know continue moving in that in that direction. And so, assuming that New York is going to bounce back at some point in the future, I think that policymakers should look at what's happening now and take it as an opportunity to build enough to allow people to live there, to allow people to live lives there. Because I think that's also, right now, California is seeing a bit of an exodus from its big cities to places like Oregon and Nevada and Texas and sort of this kind of nearby states. And it's driven in part because if you are, if you move to, you know, LA or San Francisco in your early 20s after college, and you're, you know, 10 years later, you're 32, and you maybe you're married, maybe have a, a young child, um, it's basically impossible. You can't really imagine raising a child, not because it's unpleasant, because it's too expensive. And so you move. And I think one of the crises facing the United States is that in our most productive, attractive places, we've basically made it too expensive to live unless you can you know, go back in time to 1980 and yeah. buy a house. And so to the extent that there is this exodus um, it, from major cities, because of COVID, I think it should be an opportunity for policymakers to begin to reverse the things that have made city living um, virtually impossible for someone, you know, a young person of modest means who wants to raise a family. The idea that that should be a luxury to me is yeah. insane. It should not be a luxury to want to live in a city and raise a family. Yeah, no, absolutely. And also, Laura, the fact that this recent era of New York culminates, like the 70s era culminates in the Mud Club, the 90s aughts era culminates in Hudson Yards. I mean, that's just, there is something. I mean, it's, I hate to moralize it, but there's something abominable going on there. It is a weird cycle of, um, you know, the sort of more affluent members of our society sort of deserting some space. I mean, for whatever reason, like I often think of Bangor, uh, the city near, sort of near where I live, has an amazing housing stock that you can get for nothing because there's no industry there. But it just seems like a matter of time before somebody goes, hey, we could get all of our people to Bangor and they could live in like Mm -hmm. a five bedroom Victorian for what they'd pay for like a one bedroom apartment in New York why not move our business there and then all of our employees will be really happy i don't know i mean it 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 sort of you get like younger create the creative class or whatever they're called people moving someplace and then they make it more attractive they open their little cafes they do all of this sort of lifestyle stuff that makes it appealing to more well off people and then the more well off people come in and I mean, it's it's gentrification that happens in terms of like class and profession as well as in terms of race, and um, and it I I don't know I just I could see that happening in New York, and then eventually it would start moving back in the other direction again, unless unless the the civic leaders make some kind of commitment to to maintaining a, a, a more diverse culture. Yeah, that's an interesting point that it may be, that there may be a revival. I mean, it seems to me the pandemic is going to pit two things against one another, which is the revelation that we don't need to, you know, aggregate human beings as densely as we do, 
purely for economic reasons. Um, and that's going to be pitted against how peer famished we are, right? How just how, how just how hungry we are to be lost in a crowd again, you know the the classic Baudelarian thrill of just walking by a sea of strange faces, you know, um, like the inner flanner in all of us is going to come out, and all of a sudden we're going to want to be in a city. But I love this vision that maybe it's not New York City, maybe that's a form of you know New York narcissism to say it has to be there. It could be Bangor, it could be Hudson, New York, it could be Charlottesville. I mean, there are a lot of you know, small to medium size, what one would still call cities, you know, in existence, Newburgh, New York, that are Kingston, New York, which are already having a revival. So I recently rewatched You've Got Mail um, as part of a, the podcast Blank Check. It made its way through the Nora Ephron films, and I followed along. So watch You've Got Mail. And one of the great scenes of that movie is at the beginning when Meg Ryan is walking through her, I think what, is it Upper West Side neighborhood? I don't know New York geography. Some famous part of New York. Um, she's walking through her neighborhood. She says hi to you know the, the people on the street opening their shop. She gets her cup of coffee. She gets her bagel. It's a very pleasant and humane seeming. And I think that that experience of kind of recognizing the people around you um, to an extent, knowing having having the place that you live not feel like a you know generic. Uh, strip mall or generic subdivision, but feeling like a live a real living, breathing place with history is what I think a lot of people want that. And if they're if they're not going to be able to afford it in New York, I think they're going to look for it elsewhere. And I think that if the pandemic does end up changing patterns of living and patterns of work, what might happen? And this gets to what uh, what you said, Stephen, is that people are going to try to recreate that in smaller places. Um, I think the in Charlottesville, it's about 50,000 people and, you know, you could bike around it. Uh, you could bike around the whole city and, you know, 30 minutes tops. I think a place like Charlottesville or um, a place like Athens, Georgia, or there, there are these towns all over the country, these small cities reflect a pattern of life that is attractive to people, but also is a bit more natural of um, small scale of, you know, knowing those around you. Um, and I think I think we may see a revitalization of that if it turns out people have to work from home more than they would. If you're no longer going to an office where you can kind of create community around work, you have to create community where you are. I think that's going to incentivize for a lot of people um, building out the kind of public spaces that have been that were lost in the suburbanization and you know carization of america yeah brilliant i I totally agree with that all right um very curious to hear what our listeners think on this subject so uh, shoot us an email and let us know this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance hey listeners whether you love true crime or comedies celebrity interviews news or even motivational speakers you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue right and guess what now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too enter the name your price tool from progressive the name your price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds you tell progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget 
giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Laura. What do you have? Um, I would like to endorse a book that I'm reading right now. I don't often get to read um, literature for young people as much anymore, but I I am reading Lev Grossman's new middle grade novel, The Silver Arrow, about a girl whose uncle gives her a a locomotive and a magic locomotive um, that brings animals around the planet, migrating animals. And it is just so delightful. People who like Grossman's Magician series, it's a its a, a trilogy of novels, should definitely check this out if they're at all interested in kid lit. Um, and anyone who has a kid should definitely get it for them. Oh, that sounds very, very cool. Jamel, what do you have? I recently watched uh, the film The Way Back, which is um, a 2020 release, stars Ben Affleck as he doesn't play divorced dad in the movie, but he's sort of the er-divorced dad in every single way, um, kind of, uh, you know, scraggly looking and thick around the middle <laughs> and uh, depressed and so on and so forth. Um, it's a sports film. Ben Affleck plays a, uh, a former star high school basketball player who's called back by a school to teach its failing team. I watched it because it was on HBO Max, and I figured, why not? And I was surprised by how much I really enjoyed it, how much I loved not just Affleck's performance, who he's, I think he really leans into his recent public persona as Divorced Dad, but the performances of the kids who play the basketball players, um, who are all uh, really terrific and um, really do a great job playing off of each other and off of Affleck. So the way back came out this year in February, a really solid weekday watch, I think. Hour and 40 minutes, um, no problem at all. Uh, superb. All right, well, I'm going to endorse a forthcoming book by the Yale historian Timothy Snyder, who's become very well known for his book Bloodlands and his very short book on tyranny, Trump-related volume that I think uh, uh, sold a lot of copies, but uh, he's become an academic superstar, deservedly so. And uh, I haven't read the book. I have read its excerpt. It's not out yet. But uh, I read an excerpt from it that was in the New York Review of Books called What Ails America. And it's it's just, it would be a comedy of errors if it doesn't come so close to being a horrific tragedy. But Snyder himself got very, very ill. He had a, what sounds like a routine uh, appendectomy um, and followed by complications the week or so later, a couple weeks later, that were semi-related to it, but went grossly misdiagnosed. And he goes into the Yale New Haven Hospital where he gets shoddy and in different care. He goes in through the emergency room. He, as he says, refuses to use, I mean, he says this retrospectively. He says at the time it didn't really occur to him to use his privilege or his connections to get better care, in part because I think he understood that that's an effectively immoral thing to do, to jump the queue. And secondly, we sh- shouldn't live in that world, right? Where... If you are well-connected, you get better care and your life is saved. And the piece and the book apparently is a meditation on how incredibly, irredeemably fucked up our medical care is in this country, 
from the point of view of someone who, thanks to rudimentary inability of doctors to communicate with one another, hospitals to communicate with one another, the overburdening of the system, and racism plays a part. He's with a, um, a doctor friend who happens to be a black woman who insists that Timothy Snyder is ill to the point possibly of dying, and they refuse to believe her, um, practically laugh in her face. And in fact, he does, he, he, it's in the central passages of the essay, Snyder has a brush with death that's so unmelodramatically rendered and s- seems so true to what the inner subjective experience of sitting in an emergency room alcove you know, separated from the main space by this billowing curtain. The curtain just billows all night thanks to the activity bustling around outside of it, knowing effectively that you've been misdiagnosed and you're going to die because of it. And also, he really describes in some vivid detail how your life doesn't flash before your eyes, but some version of that actually does happen where involuntarily he had these extremely vivid recollections of various important parts of his life that he might not have chosen if perfectly healthy he had been asked to write down what he might think what might flash before his eyes before he was dying it was really unscrolling before him as if he were a totally passive spectator and it's so vividly rendered so it's both things at once it's both this enraged polemic about what kind of a society lets its health and medical care degenerate to the condition that it's currently in at the same time it's a really beautifully written first-person memoir about what it is like to stand at the threshold of death. It turns out that he was in sepsis, which is a killer. I mean, it can absolutely take out a perfectly healthy person in the span of a half an hour. He went eight undiagnosed hours in full sepsis, and they managed to bring him back. But the the piece, at least, I haven't read the book yet, says, you know, and so our malady concerns us all. We all take part in the collective of pain. Those of us who are doing better are harming those who are less well off. I mean, he just drills that message home that, that the way privilege is distributed in this culture right now is an absolute moral sickness. And, it in, and so, you know, the advantaged on a on almost a minute-by-minute basis are inflicting, by implication or directly, are inflicting pain and deprivation and suffering on the people who are not privileged or advantaged. And uh, it's just an amazing piece of writing. I can't recommend it highly enough. Anyway, Jamel, thank you so much for coming back on the show. As always, a total pleasure. Uh, My pleasure. And Laura, same. It's just great having you on. Uh, Both of you, come back soon. Thanks. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. We dig it when you do. We've got a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cultfest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. For Jamel Bowie and Laura Miller, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. 
Granger, for the ones who get it done.